Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. So Onyx has a feature online that I don't think I've talked about yet and it's it's something that's really helpful and it's a free feature to anyone, not even if you have you know, a membership to the, the Hunt app or if you have a chip, it's free to everyone online. It's called Hunt Central. So if you go over to onyxmaps.com, Click on a little hunt icon on the top, scroll down to Hunt Central, and you can go through each state and pull up the details on seasons, licenses, regulations, know the percentage of public lands, private lands, and really dive into specifics. Say, let's go for example, you want to elk hunt in Idaho like I am this year. You can click on a little elk icon, it pulls up how many. Boone and Crockett elk have been taken out of Idaho. Some of the seasons dates, what tags you would need for that, as well as breaks down the the costs of the the elk tags for a resident, non-resident, some of the application fees, links to all the big game seasons and rules, and it really puts everything in one place. And once you overlay that with using the Hunt app online or on your phone, tablet, you're able to really have scouting all in one place and planning out these hunts. So by using Onyx Maps, if you want to check out the Hunt app and use the coupon code EMW, you can save yourself 20% off that. So head over to onyxmaps.com, check out Hunt Central and the Hunt app. In addition, Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 have put together the most all-encompassing elk hunting course, and that is the University of Elk Hunting. You'll hear Corey on today's episode, and this is the fourth time I've had Corey on, and there's a good reason for it. His his knowledge with elk hunting and the, and the people that he's surrounded by is unbelievable, and, and we're really lucky that he puts that out for everyone to be able to consume this content and learn and try to reduce that learning curve, which is what we're all trying to do by, you know, listening to podcasts and reading articles and, you know, taking in content however you choose to do so. So University of Elk Hunting, if you check that out online, you can save yourself 20%, which comes to $20 off of the University of Elk Hunting online course by using the code East Meets West. The next partner of the podcast is Maven Optics. So Maven is redefining the optics business. So they were born out of wanting to solve a problem, basically out of the idea that you know they could develop a premium product without compromising on quality and performance. So that idea, how they could do that to offer that to customers at an affordable price was to sell those world-class optics directly to the customers themselves. Because stores kind of fill their shelves with products to fit a specific retail price point, it puts a limit on companies and the products they're able to produce, which really in turn means that quality and performance suffer. So you can't find Maven in retail stores. They work directly with the customers to put out the the best quality optics at a lower price point. So if you want to check out Maven Optics online, go to mavenbuilt.com, use the code 
eastmeetswest-gift. Get yourself a free gift with any full price optics order online. And lastly, and not least, is Heather's Choice. As we're all getting ready here for hunting season, you know, getting together your food and your nutrition is extremely important. It's I think it's important all the time, year-round. But with hunting season, if you want to fuel your body with food and fuel that really, you know, helps you out and helps you perform better for longer, then you should check out Heather's Choice. You know, high fat, high protein options and meals from dinners and breakfasts down to some snacks with their delicious packaroons. You can check them out. And if you use the code East Meets West at checkout, get yourself free shipping on any orders over $99. And if you want to, you know, just try some few things out and don't want to spend, you know, $99, please use the link in our partners page on the website or in the show notes of this podcast. It really helps us out a ton. Okay, so with that being said, on this podcast, I have Corey Jacobson coming on, and I'm really excited for this episode. Corey is just a blast to get to talk to, you know, is the fourth time coming on the podcast, as I'd mentioned, and he's got so much knowledge. We're going to really, you know, dive into some stuff here to hopefully you can pick out some nuggets, some things that, you know, we had not talked about in the past and really gain some knowledge here from, you know, one of the world's best elk hunters in my opinion so this this episode is uh, definitely going to be a special one and if you've noticed and i've mentioned it a little bit i've been releasing two episodes per week i've got a lot of elk hunting content a lot of stuff that's going on we need to get this information out as much as possible and so i'm gonna just be punching out some episodes here you know the one from Corey here i also have ones from josh boyd I have just a whole bunch of Clint Casper, a bunch of people coming on here, you know, soon. So definitely uh, be checking this stuff out. Give me feedback. Let me know what's going on. And and then lastly, the one thing I did want to mention, I guess there's two last things. But uh, the first one is I just wrote an article for Onyx over on their website, on their blog. It's called Plan, Prepare, and Execute a Western Hunt. So I really broke down all the pieces and components that I've talked about a bunch of times, but put it in an easy to read format. So you can go check that out on Onyx's website and see, you know, maybe you can, if you're not planning to hunt this year, you know, you can uh, really use that to plan going ahead. And if you are this year, there might be some information in there that can, that can really help you out. So check that out. And lastly, I just wanted to say that have, you know, some apparel up on the website if you want to stock up here before hunting season, really help support the podcast. I'm trying to put out, you know, some really cool lifestyle apparel items. The I'll be wearing the stealth uh, multi-cam trucker hat on my hunt, and really looking forward to to getting to to rock that hat. I'm excited about it, and it's really good for you know for hunting and everything else, and you know wearing out wherever. So three percent of those proceeds are donated to backcountry hunters and anglers and the QDMA currently. I plan on expanding that list as things go. Each item is specific to an organization, so check that out in the the product, you know, pages there. 
And hopefully by the end of this week, I'll have another new product coming out, adding to the website, and it's custom Nalgene bottles. Something that I've been really pumped about, made a custom color options and just really cool design. I think it's uh, it's going to be pretty pretty awesome. So be looking forward to them coming out. I'll get them up on the website here shortly. But uh, all right, enough rambling on by me. Let's really get into the podcast here with Corey Jacobson. All right, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast. It is the middle of August here, and I have on the line Corey Jacobson. What's going on, Corey? You know, just uh, counting down the days till elk season. So as we were, we were talking before we started the podcast, that this is my busy time of year for work. You know, everybody's ramping up for elk season, so they're sending in questions and emails, and we're trying to put out content and everything, and it's uh, it's crunch time now. It's just about go time. Yeah, it is. And and uh, when does your season start? So Idaho's opening day is two weeks from uh, from tomorrow, and that's August 30th it opens here. So we'll be hunting opening day the first two days here and then regrouping for a few days and getting packed up and heading off to the next hunt. So that's those first two days are more just, uh, you know, we're here, we're local. It's kind of a good scouting trip for later in the season, and we've actually got in some pretty good hunting early so we're gonna definitely not pass that opportunity up yeah no that doesn't that doesn't sound too bad and and like you said it's it's uh you only get well i guess like you said in the past on here is you only get you know one month a year to have this to happen so take advantage of the time that you have right totally yep (laughs) yeah that's for sure. No, that that's good. And and for anyone that's listening and kind of going to skip a little bit of the the intro with Corey here is you've been a guest I think four times now. So <laughs> there's uh if you're not familiar with him uh so if if Corey if you want to give, you know, a quick one or two line, you know, kind of introduction to yourself here, that would be good and then we can dive, you know, right into talking about your hunting plans. Yeah, no, maybe instead of an introduction, I need to give an apology. If I've been on four times, people are probably tired of uh, <laughs> of listening to us. But no, I just, uh, I'm a, a very, uh, I don't know, I, the word passionate seems weird to use, but I'm a very passionate elk hunter who has a, a deep love for elk and elk hunting and especially sharing my experiences with others in, in hopes that they will be able to learn something from it and become more consistently successful themselves as an elk hunter. I just, you know, I I love seeing other people be successful and I love elk hunting. And so to be able to combine those two things, it's a, it's a humbling blessing to uh, be able to do that for a, for a real job. Yeah. If you, if you consider it a real job. Yeah, (laughs) no, for sure. And, and what's, what's cool is actually everyone's probably heard your name uh, on every episodes with the university of elk hunting at the beginning of uh, every episode there. So if they weren't sick of hearing your name, then they'll definitely be by the end of this one. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. And and I think, no, but in, in all honesty, the, the episode that we recorded back in March surrounding, you know, planning a do it yourself elk hunt was by far the most downloaded episode that I've had to date. So it shows that there's a lot of people that 
have a need to want to learn about this and and got you know a ton of feedback on it and that's been been really good so i think it i think uh, everyone's happy that you're coming back on again <laughs> that's good yeah no and that's and i uh when we did the linguist film a couple years ago with sitka and con outdoors uh, i had an opportunity to visit with larry d jones and Coincidentally, I had an opportunity to uh, to visit with him again a month ago, and we did a, a podcast with him. But he uh, he said something when we were filming the linguist. I had asked him a question. You know, we we're talking about him being a pioneer of elk calling, and I said, "Were people hungry for information? Did they have a desire to learn more?" You know, back then in the in the mid '80s, and he looked at me and he said, "Let me tell you something. People are hungry for elk hunting information today." And I think just with the several different platforms and formats that there are to share information, there's just, there's no better time to learn. And for those of us who love sharing that information, there's, there's no better time to be able to produce that content because it is just so easy to, to share with others. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many different platforms out there from podcasts, you know, so audio and video and, and writing and, and all the other different avenues. And it's all, you know, right there at your fingertips, you're able to get, you know, on your cell phone or computer, tablet, whatever else. And I think it's definitely creating more opportunities for people to, to, you know, be able to go out and make these dreams come true. Absolutely. Yep. So Corey, you said you're starting off, you know, in Idaho for a few days and then you're, you're taking off and, and what, what you're going to a whole bunch of States just to, <laughs> to like, it just a, seems like a pretty packed schedules. And can you explain a little bit about the, the project that you're doing here to kind of get us kicked off? Yeah. So we started last year, which was, uh, you know, 2018, we started a day-by-day video series on the Elk 101 YouTube channel called Destination Elk. And really what it was, you know, we had our season planned out. We knew where we were going hunting. And rather than, you know, capturing content like we typically do and then maybe making a film, you know, longer 30-minute film about the hunt and showing everything that, you know, condensed into 30 minutes, we, uh, we decided to do a day-by-day series. And we actually... You know, back in I think 2009, we did a we called it a semi-live webisode on the Elk 101 YouTube channel, and we filmed our Idaho hunt, which I think ended up being a 10-day hunt. We filmed each day, and then we we re, we, <laughs> we released each day uh, as an individual video on YouTube, and you know that was back when YouTube was still uh, grandma's looking at cats rolling balls of yarn across the floor you know it hadn't turned into what youtube is today where people are just absorbing everything through it and so um we'd we'd got more into some of the film stuff for a few years and then last year we we decided to go back to the day-by-day almost a semi-live deal where we could take people along and show them you know what we do in the morning getting up getting our packs ready what we're eating for breakfast you know jumping in the truck driving to the trailhead getting out hiking um, trying to get bugles and really show the details and and it really allowed people to to be there with us almost you know people just that was a lot of the comments we got was man I just felt like I was right there I felt like I know you guys I felt like I was your hunting partner and so we did that last fall and uh, you know there were, there were a couple things that I think we learned from that number one we we hunted 
Oregon, and then we went to Wyoming, and then from Wyoming we came back and hunted Idaho with an individual who won a hunt with us that we had given away through Mountain Ops, and then from there went uh, stayed in Idaho but a different place in Idaho and went on the hunt of a lifetime hunt, and then from there hunted Idaho with my children in October, and it was too much. You know, we just, there was pressure because those hunts, we only had five or six days on most of them to be successful. And we had two or three tags to fill. Uh, we just, we didn't have time to, we were forced to hunt a time period either early or late when it wasn't ideal. And it just, it took some of the fun out of it. And so this year we said, you know, rather than missing all of my son's football games in September and my daughter's volleyball games in September, because we literally were gone, you know, the whole month. We were home for two days and then gone for six and then home for a day and gone for five. But we were we were gone the whole month from a emotional and mental standpoint. <laughs> so this year we're going to we're going to break it up a little bit and maybe stretch it out, you know, just uh, so we're, we're going to hunt those first two days in Idaho and then we'll uh be home for I think five days and then we're going to head to Oregon and we're going to hunt a nine day period in Oregon during a better time than, than what we did last year. So it'll be, I think September 4th through the 14th, somewhere really close to that. Uh, from there, we're going to come home for a week and regroup and go to volleyball and football games and do uh, do some fun stuff there. And then uh, we're going to hit it again hard here in Idaho the last basically nine days of the season here in Idaho. And then uh, we will only have a couple days to, to transition into the hunt of a lifetime hunt, which anybody listening that's that's not familiar with that, we, uh, we have an opportunity each year to take out a child who has a life-threatening illness. And it's in the past, it's been kind of our capstone hunt at the end of the season. This year, our season's going to go on past that, but it's Every year, it is the hunt that realigns us and reminds us of why we do what we do and just how blessed we are to, to be able to do that. And uh, you know, these, are, these are youth that are going through leukemia and cancer and just all sorts of big struggles. And so for them, their, their dream isn't to go to Disneyland. Their dream is to go elk hunting. And we get to be a part of you know, facilitating a camp that takes them out and helps them. Uh, fortunately, so far we've been 100% on success, and uh, I think beyond that, though, we're just we're able to show them what elk hunting's about and take them on an adventure that we take for granted sometimes, and for them, it's their their lifelong dream. And uh, so we're doing that hunt the uh, first week of October, and then our rifle season in Idaho opens October 15th. So as sports schedules and school schedules allow, I'll be able to hunt with my children. Uh, for the next two or three weeks there. And then we'll actually end our elk season in Montana, and we're going to go rifle hunting with Randy Newberg over in Montana. So I've only shot one elk in my entire life with a rifle, and so this will be uh, – it'll be something, you know, I wouldn't say different or new or anything, but it's, uh, it's something I haven't spent a lot of time doing, so – yeah, no, it'll be a, a fun experience, I'm sure. Just a little bit different than your your daily stuff. I'm sure the tactics and everything will will probably change a little bit. Yeah, I told Randy, you know, the, the stereotype of 
the uh, road hunters just driving around with a cooler in the back of the truck and shooting elk from the road. I thought, that's what I'm expecting. So I'm just planning on <laughs> listening to some good music and sitting in the heated cab of the truck and shooting an elk from the road. And he laughed and said, we'll be, we'll be taking you over the top of a 9,000-foot pass with 12 llamas and camping in the backcountry in three feet of snow just to make sure you get a real late-season experience. So oh boy, I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll probably end up somewhere in the middle of those two scenarios. Yeah, no, that's funny. <laughs> well, that's uh that's cool you're you know, you're going back to Oregon there and and that I mean, you don't hear a whole lot about Oregon. I mean, you talked about it in the one podcast we did, but is there a reason why that you want to go back to Oregon so bad? Redemption. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and I did watch the the videos last year from that series from Destination Elk, and yes. So if you want to explain that a little bit, what uh, what kind of happened there? Yeah, no, and that's it's hard. I have to uh, definitely stay um, humble, I guess, because I was humbled there last year. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself and jinx myself but we uh we went hunting for roosevelt elk for the first time last year first time i'd ever hunted roosevelt elk and because of our busy schedule we scheduled it for the first week of the season in oregon and last year it opened on like august 25th or something so it was really early and it was a tough hunt i mean the just the terrain the the thick vegetation just the area where those the habitat where those elk live makes it tough to hunt you throw in full moon warm weather and pre-rut and it was it was a difficult hunt i think we only had three quasi call-ins in seven or eight days and really only two that i would consider to be an actual call-in you know that the elk came to the calls and came towards our setup uh the the one the last night the bull was six yards from us in just the thickest mass of ferns you can imagine and it was so thick he was six yards away and we couldn't even see the ferns moving as he walked through it uh so no obviously no shot in in a situation like that uh, but i did get a shot and it was my dream situation a really nice five by five roosevelt bull just materialized out of the coastal fog in you know a, a terrain that just it was I don't know, medieval, like just all the fog and it was dark, old growth timber and green moss and green ferns everywhere. And it was just ideal for what I'd always dreamed of. And the bull stopped at 35 yards and I shot. And upon further review, we found out that I'd hit a stob that was sticking up about a little over halfway to the elk and it deflected my arrow down and my arrow was stuck in a tree right uh, right behind where the elk had been standing so missed uh, my only opportunity there and so this year we're going back uh to get a little redemption just you know <laughs> i don't i don't say that disrespectfully that we're gonna go back there and kill an elk just to teach it a lesson type of a thing but there's a it was a challenging hunt and i'm i'm embracing the challenge and looking forward to the challenge this year yeah no that's that's good and, and uh yeah, hopefully that that all works out for you. Was there? I mean, is there a lot of differences with the the Roosevelt besides the train and everything? As far as the elk itself and calling, is is that much different from the Rocky Mountain elk? I don't think so. And it, uh, you know, the I think a lot of people feel there is a big difference. You know, they say that Roosevelt elk don't bugle; uh, they're impossible to call in. 
Uh, you can't find them. And, and I think all of those are valid, but I think all of those are centered around the habitat mm-hmm. and the terrain that they live in. You know, they just, it's so thick over there. And those elk literally just live in these little pockets where they will travel 400 yards as their, their home territory. And they don't travel outside of that because they don't have to. They have so much thick vegetation for security. There's so much feed everywhere. Everything over there is wet. So they've got water. Uh, they, they just don't have to move. And even if you bump them, it seems like they you know go 300 yards up on the ridge and stand there. If they don't hear you coming, they bed right back down there. And the next day, they're back in the same bed. And so a lot of, a lot of differences there between them and Rocky Mountain elk. And I think with that thick vegetation, you just you don't hear bugles. You know, you'll hike and hike and hike and not see any sign. And then you'll get into that one little 400-yard pocket where the elk lives, and you'll hear an elk bugle. And I think you just have to be closer to them to hear them bugle. You don't hear as many bugles because they are so uh, just spread out in pockets. They aren't moving, so you don't happen to be there when an elk comes through bugling. Uh, and then as far as calling them in, it uh, you know it's definitely tough that you don't have the shooting lanes. If, if things aren't right, that elk's probably not going to be as likely to come just plowing through brush. I mean, they do, but... You know, they still are, are elk and they use their senses to stay alive. So trying to find a place where the elk is comfortable coming into the calls creates a challenge. And so I can see where people say you can't call in a Roosevelt bull. My experience and the, and the experiences of those who I have drawn off of to gain a little more insight and knowledge on it is that Roosevelt elk are actually more aggressive than Rocky Mountain elk when it comes to, to calling them in. Uh, and then the last thing is just that terrain. You know, you're hiking in wet country. Everything's wet. Even if it's sunny out, it's still everything. The fog comes through and it sounds like it's a rainstorm just from the condensation dripping off of the trees. And so you're constantly wet. The uh, The vegetation's super thick. So just getting through it is tough. And, you know, we get back to the truck at night and feel like we were more wore out than when we hike 14 miles in Wyoming or Idaho in rugged terrain and look, and we'd only covered six miles that day. It's just, a, you know, a lot of fighting brush and on your hands and knees and dealing with, you know, wet conditions. And so it, it's different, but I think that the differences are attributed to the terrain and the habitat, not so much the uh, the species. So it, the, the, what I'm picking up out of that is you might be hunting the, the same type of terrain and everything at the end of September when you draw that Pennsylvania elk tag. <laughs> if I draw that Pennsylvania elk tag, I think uh, there are going to be a lot of similarities based on what I've seen. Besides the fact that you should be able to call them in a lot easier, but the the terrain and stuff sounds so similar. I mean, water everywhere, super thick. It's it's tougher to hear bugles as far as like just because of the you know really thick vegetation. But I think uh, I think you'd have a little bit better chance of getting them coming in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Well, not only that, but there's 400-inch bulls behind every tree in Pennsylvania. So. Every tree. <laughs> well, uh, I think with the with the limited number of tags that they give out back there, it you know it's pretty easy to make the uh, success on mature bulls look really good because you know you give out 20 tags or whatever, and 10 of them happen to be really big bulls. It's uh, it 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 definitely gives that impression that you can go to Pennsylvania and if you were one of the very few chosen to receive a tag you uh, you definitely can be hunting mature bulls yeah and this is the first year with an archery season so that'll be that'll be interesting too and you didn't tell anybody that before 
the uh, application period, did you? Um, <laughs> I, I <laughs> you might have. my chances, did you? Yeah, I mean, the the article I wrote on how to apply in Pennsylvania might have been the most <laughs> popular one I wrote this year, but uh, sorry about that, Corey. <laughs> uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's cool. I'm excited for it. But no, to, to kind of go back there, so what do you do in Oregon as far as like scouting out the area ahead of time if there's you know water everywhere and it's you know different vegetation what's how does that differ from like when you're planning like an idaho hunt you know like an idaho hunt when i when i start my e-scouting i'm looking for uh really i get into an area and the first thing i look for on google earth is a north facing slope i want to find a north facing hillside that's got dark timber uh preferably with a bench about three quarters of the way up it and if i find that I think, okay, that's a prime elk bedding area. And so, you know, that, that's really how I start my e-scouting. When you look at the old Oregon coastal range, everything there looks like a north-facing slope. It's just <laughs> everything is thick, dark timber. Um, it just, it all looks good. But those elk are so spread out and in pockets that you really, you can't rely on that. You know, in Idaho, I'll find an area where I can hike through six miles and locate a whole bunch of north facing slopes or good bedding areas and i'm pretty confident that as i hike through that area i'm going to find an elk bugling in september i don't have that same confidence in oregon it just you have to cover so much more country i think that the opportunity to walk right by a pocket of elk and not know they're there is is higher um so i think you know what what i would look for more in oregon are breaks in terrain and those fringe areas you know a a logged area clear cut where where they went in and, and literally just cut down every tree there and exposed a whole open hillside because what that does is creates a lot of great feed source a lot of those canopies those old growth canopies uh over in oregon look beautiful but when you look at the the vegetation inside those canopies there's nothing nutritious there the sun doesn't penetrate that and it doesn't grow any feed for the elk and so as great as they look they don't make good bedding areas they don't make good feed areas so if if anything all you're getting in those areas is a transition between the two so i'm looking for places where they're going to be more likely to feed you know an area that's been logged 20 years ago that's now filled with just the thickest mass of little saplings and and a new growth pine uh, and fur, those those create good bedding areas and good uh, places for yellow jackets to hide, <laughs> as well as some feed in there. Uh, but a logging area is good. So I'm looking for areas where there is a break in the vegetation, where there are some new growth or some freshly logged areas, uh, and then trying to correlate that to maybe a place where the elk can slip right in too close by to, to bed. Uh, so definitely looking at that. I'm also relying on on locals. I've got friends that live over there, and you know we'll be hunting with David Brinker for three or four days again, and then uh, another group, uh, Corey and Shannon from Angry Spike Productions, who they're just absolute elk killers for Roosevelt elk on the coast. And so, um, you know, we're, we're definitely relying on their knowledge of the areas as well. But there are areas, you know, when I get there, it's not like I'm just tagging along following them i'm still saying hey that area looks good let's go give that a try and you know we're we're going into it relying on their experience and and uh teaming up with them but at the same time contributing hopefully in a, definitely not an equal way but contributing to uh to the experience as well and and sharing some of that load of hey we've got a couple areas that look good let's go give those a try and yeah 
No, that that makes sense. And like especially like the logging cuts and stuff. I just I just know again from Pennsylvania that's a big thing that draws in the elk and and deer, but the the fresh grasses that are growing now it has the sunlight coming through it. You know, they seem to, you know, flock those areas and you know, even like so not not during the season, but in when I'm shed hunting for elk like you know they i go to those areas because they're always out there in the winter time and 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 same thing in september when i i just go out to bugle them before there was ever a season and you always find them in those logging cuts and you know and and as far as you were saying with the thicker ones uh, them bedding in it's amazing that they can even get their antlers through those trees but somehow <laughs> they do <laughs> they do and they usually do it very quickly and it takes us hours to crawl through there and i'm i'm I would make a guarantee that we are cut up much more than the elk are when we get through some of that. So it just <laughs> seems like everything in Oregon has thorns and is poisonous or wet. And it's, people are like, why are you going back there and, and excited about it? And I think that's that's part of the allure, the challenge of it. But there's just something mystical about that terrain. And when you yeah. see an elk materialize in that kind of terrain, it's, it's I don't know, there's just a, there's an appeal for sure. I think you need to talk to John Barclow at Sitka to have him make some sort of an elk hide, you know, clothing <laughs> for you for you to get through some of those coastal areas. <laughs> Slip through it and and come out unscathed yeah. on the other side. Not highly breathable, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's great. So then after Oregon, and so you kind of explain some of the things that you're going through there. And you come back and take a little break, and then you're in your home state of Idaho. Are you going to be going to kind of a new area, or is this an area you've hunted in the past? We, uh, you know, we're going to break it up into two parts. We're going to hunt. Um, I'll call it road hunting. It's, it's, you know, don't don't get the impression that we're driving around the truck and hoping to see an elk, but very mobile. So we'll we've got areas that are you know a mile or two off the road. And so we'll drive there and, and before daylight, we'll hike into that area. And if there's nothing there, we'll be back at the truck, you know, a half hour after daylight and we'll drive to another area and still get in a morning hunt. And so very mobile, we'll, we'll pick off a lot of those areas that we've had luck in the past that we've hunted for 20 plus years and, uh, and do that. And then we'll take a little break on the weekend. And then the next week, that full week, the last week of September, we're going to hit some new areas that are more remote. Um, but actually, I've been spending the summer trying to get into some of them. And, you know, there's there's some areas I've tried to get into. And it's like this is not going to be conducive to getting back here and killing two elk and packing them out. So it's just, you know, whether it's just complete bluff areas and just too remote and too rocky uh, but we've got a couple new areas that I've, I've put trail cameras in that we're excited. We probably won't even get back and check the trail cameras until that part of September. Um, and we're going to, you know, hopefully be able to having nine days to hunt and just two of us with tags, we, uh, we can be a little more selective. And most of the time when we're hunting with five or six days in Idaho, uh, trying to collect content, trying to fill the freezer, we aren't all that picky. And so, you know, this year we're going to have an opportunity to, um, maybe target a more mature elk. And again, it's Idaho public land over the counter. So I'm not saying, hey, we're going to hold out for a 350 bull or anything, but we can uh, hopefully get into some areas where there are more mature elk and we can hopefully target some of those bigger herd bulls. 
Yeah, I mean that's fine. Let let those ones go, and I'll I'll take them out of the herd for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's great. And and you and I, when we had talked in the past a little bit about like your, you know, quote unquote road hunting method, uh, you know, I I I like that idea as far as being able to move around and be mobile, and I I really plan on utilizing some of that, you know, in the hunt plans that you know that we kind of put together for our Idaho trip. It we have a lot of areas, you know, marked on the maps and will be downloaded on our Onyx app and and everything else because I, I just I've I re- went into it last year, you know, at 14 days in Colorado and didn't find elk where we normally did and all the spots I had were, you know, I had like three areas marked out and they were all at the same type of elevation and and everything else and I realized that they weren't there because of you know that reason ended up being the water. But, you know, having those backup areas that you can bounce around to and and just keep going until you find the elk. I, I I like that method. I really plan on, you know, trying it myself. Totally. Yeah. And it just, I mean, we, I think we went through a full uh, evolution of hunting that way growing up just because I grew up in an area where there were a lot, a lot of logging roads. And so that was really, you know, you just had to be mobile. The elk moved a long ways. And so we, you know, we kind of got accustomed to going on a morning hunt going back to the truck driving somewhere else and going on an evening hunt and then uh, we got into the adventure side and thought man we need to start we need to go deep way back in there and take 10 days worth of gear and you know getting into some of that and we realized pretty quickly that especially here in Idaho with with wolves and different things you can get back into an area that you scout all summer and it was filled with elk and overnight it changes and there's nothing there you don't see a track you don't hear an elk and you've spent a full day or longer getting in there. You've spent a couple of days looking, you know, just thinking the elk have to be just over the next ridge. And that's really all you can cover in that country is one ridge. And and then uh, you finally decide to back out and you come out and it takes you a day to get out and a day to get somewhere else. And, you, you know, your season's over. And so we just, there are definitely areas that we know that we can go back into and bivy hunting is good. Or even going back and setting up a spike camp can be effective but for the most part i found that just being mobile and you know we'll cover 12 to 14 miles a day on foot and we're, we're wearing ourselves out but a lot of times we're doing that we're getting in the truck we're driving 10 miles we're throwing out a, a bivy tent and a sleeping bag we're falling asleep and we're waking up the next morning we're hiking for 10 or 12 miles there and we're hiking back out and we're pulling up our bivy tent and jumping in the truck and driving 10 miles and and trying another area so we just really go until we find the elk and then we hunt them and yeah from there go to find the next one yeah and so like i mean with idaho specifically how much does it deter you with people and you know hunting pressure does that does that bother you a lot or do you try to how how do you kind of manage that uh you know it's there there's people and it's i think anytime you're on an over-the-counter public land hunt you have to just assume there's going to be some level of of competition from other hunters. Uh, with that being said, I've learned that uh, if there's somebody parked right where I want to hunt that day, I can drive down the road another four miles and find another similar canyon and probably have just as good of luck up there. Uh, so I don't get too discouraged. Uh, I just learn to adapt pretty quickly if we can and stay optimistic about it. Obviously, you have a plan to go into a place and you've scouted all summer and you pull up there and there's another truck parked there. It's not a lot you can do about it and so you just have to it's frustrating but you you have to move on and 
Um, but with that being said, I think we've learned that people will drive right by some prime areas to get to a trailhead. And, you know, there might be a road going to the trailhead that's nine miles long and they'll drive from the, from the pavement to the trailhead and not stop and hunt anything in between because they want to get to that trailhead and from there get back farther into the country. So, you know, we, we've found some of these little pockets that are closer to um, maybe closer to towns, closer to roads, um, steep hillsides that look like a vertical cliff that you wouldn't ever think there would be an elk up there. But right up at the top of that vertical cliff is a really nice basin you can't see from the road. And so just identified a lot of those areas and, and we'll hit those. And they're just, they're short hunts. They're a morning hunt. And, you know, within four or five hours, if there's elk in there and so I mean, we we really do a lot of a lot of scouting during September, and I always call it scouting with a bugle tube is the most effective <laughs> way to know if there's an elk there right then. And and uh, so we do. We cover a lot of country and and look for that elk that's vocal on that day. The, it it kind of reminds me the from your destination elk series last year when you took the the hunter that won the the mountain ops uh, challenge there or, or giveaway yeah. whatever it was. Was that kind of a similar situation where that was near a road, if I remember right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Tommy Tommy was the nicest man. Just, I mean, excited as can be. He's hunted elk nine or ten times and, and has yet to kill one. And he was super excited for this hunt. But Tommy also was coming from Texas, and he's 65. He had a knee replacement surgery earlier in the year. Uh, just you know, coming from sea level and hunting at 8,000, 9,000 feet, it physically, he had, he had some struggles getting up to where we needed to be. So we tried getting him away from the road and from the other people because there were other hunters in that area. And uh, the first day we were able to do it and got back up into an area and it was, it was incredible. You know, we had multiple call-ins, multiple bulls that were screaming and uh, just didn't get it done. And then after that, I, I, we just hit, we hit it too hard out of the gate, and it was more our fault than Tommy's. We just we knew we had to get back up in there to have a chance, and I thought we have a better chance on the first day than on the last day of of doing that. And realistically, had we hunted a little bit easier the first day and broke him in and got him acclimated to it, we probably wouldn't have have hurt him quite as bad. But yeah, after that, he was. Uh, he was more excited to hunt closer to the roads. And we, we got into some elk closer to the roads, but the reality was people had them pushed back two or three miles off of the roads. And um, we were hoping to catch one as it was moving through and just didn't have those same opportunities that close. Yeah. No, I, 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 rem I remember that that video series, that part there where they had the, the call in on the elk and everything else. And, and you know, to be honest, I you know, come from, you know, Pennsylvania, we have hills and everything, but the elevation is so different. Like it, it takes a, it takes a solid couple of days before I feel like myself, you know, climbing up and down the mountains. Yep. And, yeah. And he, you know, to his credit, he, he could go a couple miles on a treadmill, you know, at a pretty good pace. And he, he was, he was a fighter. I mean, he was a college football player and so there was no give up in him but literally he just he gave it all he had and there's a difference man you put a 30 pound pack on your back and climb from 6,500 feet to 9,000 feet and you're coming from literally 60 feet above the sea 
there's it's tough to prepare yourself for that physically and, and there are ways you can and um, things that we've learned even since that hunt that would you know, we share with people they're like hey if you are coming from low elevation um, don't put on a training mask and get on a treadmill and just walk put on a backpack and go find the steepest hill whether it's a hundred feet from the bottom to the top and just go as hard as you can to the top and turn around come down and just go up and down that make yourself puke but you've got to get all of your muscles working together and forcing your lungs to put oxygen into your blood and and get that oxygen to all of your muscles and so i mean you know things that, that we learned from that as well that we've taken for granted living here and, and not having to acclimate to elevation yeah no i yeah i understand that and and yeah i think we talked about that in the last podcast and we we're talking about the physical preparation and the hills and everything and that's I mean, that's as real as you're going to get when you're not in the mountains, you know, finding a hill like that. And you can find a hill really anywhere, even in flat country, something, you know, similar to that. And uh, yeah, go go find a stadium and, and climb up the stairs. I mean, really, that's doing stairs with a backpack on is if that's all that you do. If you only have one thing that you can do, that's going to be way better than jogging or running or getting on a treadmill or you know, anything else, if that's the only thing you can do, I think that something like that is probably the most beneficial. And honestly, that's, I, I haven't had the time this summer to be as dedicated to, um, I've got a gym in my garage. So I, I, you know, last summer every day was out there doing some kind of a workout. I've just been too busy this summer to devote that time to be able to do it. And I've been gone a lot. So I haven't been at my home gym to do that. So my workout's been a lot of backpack with a 25 pound uh, plate weight and a couple trail cameras and a bunch of water. And I just go out and take off hiking and hike all day on the mountain. And that's, you know, that's what you're going to be doing in elk season. So if you replicate that now, it's going to uh, be the, the most realistic preparation you can do. Yeah. So Corey, I have a question, and this is kind of a little bit here for for selfish reasons, but you know, I'm going to Idaho as well, and 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 you and I had talked a little bit offline about it, but the area is a little different than what I've been in the past. From the side of it, it's uh, you know a little bit more broken up between some dark timber and some open country. There's still a decent amount of dark timber in there, but. Do you find it to be any different, like as far as how you look at areas like that, than you do some of the really, you know, thick, you know, areas that you typically are going to? Not really. The, the thing about like what you're describing, you know, you've got the the south exposures are all wide open. They might have sagebrush intermixed in there, but they're an open hillside. That if there's an elk standing there, you you can see it from two miles away. And then right on the backside, on the north face, it's heavy timber. You know, a lot of older growth. Uh, red fir and some of the bigger, uh, not not thick vegetation, but heavy timber. So you have good shooting lanes in there. Uh, there's, there are draws and things within those slopes that have some thicker vegetation and, and water and springs and everything. But realistically, I don't look at it a whole lot differently. Those open hillsides are where the elk are going to feed. The heavy timbers where they're going to bed and they're going to come out on the open hillsides in the evening, spend the night out there. You'll see them first thing in the morning. Then they'll go over the ridge onto the the north face and bed there. And I think my hunting strategy in those areas is more um, let them get into the timber because it's so hard to call an elk in the open country. They can see where you're calling from. They don't see an elk, and they aren't they aren't going to come into you. So I 
do a lot more glassing first thing in the morning, find the elk, find a good herd with, you know, a couple big bulls and let them get into the timber, watch where they go and then slip around, get above them, wait for the thermals to change and start coming uphill and then get in the timber with them and, and hunt them that way. Okay. And that, that's what I was going to, what I was going to ask you was, you know, I've heard some people say that, you know, they wait, you know, they waiting to see where they're coming out and they kind of wait till the next day to, you know, ambush them, things like that. And I didn't know if like the same strategy with, you know, the midday kind of going into the bedroom was, was the same as, you know, in other areas. I think it's even better. Oh, good. (laughs) They just, they, they know that they're exposed out on those open hillsides. So they don't linger there as long and they'll head back probably to their bedding areas earlier in that kind of terrain than they do in a a more timbered terrain uh, like where I hunt here in central Idaho. And because of that, they're more active in those bedding areas. And I think that, you know, once those thermals change, you can get in there and, and really have a good time hunting elk all day long, especially like you're going the second half of September. That last week should just be lights out incredible for that midday hunting in the timber. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's the kind of information I'm looking for to get me <laughs> even more excited and unfocused at work. But, uh, <laughs> that, uh, so like when you're, say you do see them go into the timber like that and you, you're waiting for the thermals to switch and you're going in, are you waiting to call until you get, say you think, you know, 200 yards or so from the elk or how is your kind of strategy to close the deal on that? No, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll locate still, I'll get on that main ridge and just drop into the timber. You know, again, thermals are, are tricky in that area because you have the open hillside that's warming up really fast. It's, it's getting direct sun first thing in the morning. So the thermals there are going to be pulling up the hill a lot sooner. On the back side, you've got that north face, it's heavy timber. The ground stays really cool. So you've got those competing thermals, which causes a lot of swirling wind, especially from like that eight o'clock till nine thirty or ten o'clock time frame. And so you can't rush it too soon because you'll have the thermals coming up in your face and you'll get up on the ridge and you step off onto that north face and go ten yards into it and the thermals switch and start going straight down the hill and the elk smell you. So you have to be really, you know, careful about not being right on top of the elk. And uh, once I know the thermals are consistent then I usually, you know, do my normal location. I'll do a location bugle, get an answer, and find out exactly where they're bedded. Uh, it's usually not going to be just two or three hundred yards off of the open ridge down into there. They're still going to travel deep into that timber and find a good bench near some water where it's cool and where they're again protected. Uh, so once I locate them, then I can go into my normal hunting routine, which is hunting timber anyway. Uh, but they're just—it seems like in those areas where there are the open hillsides, the, the wide open hillsides transitioning into those timbered draws and timbered uh, north faces those elk just seem to be more active and more susceptible to the midday calling okay well that i mean that helps too with like it's almost acts as well it does act as a a, you know a funnel for them where when you have you know more you know dark timber and stuff i'm sure it's you know a little bit tougher to be able to figure out where they are when you have a pocket on that north face you can almost guess that they're going to be in there somewhere Yeah. Oh, totally. And that's the other thing. You can sit a mile away on a hillside and glass 10 of these open hillsides that have timber on the north face. And you can see, you'll literally see five or six different herds of elk on different open hillsides. And they'll all start heading back into that timber. And you know that they're in that timber patch on that timbered hillside. And we're talking, I mean, it's not like a little 
20 acre patch of timber we're talking you know 1500 to 2000 vertical feet from the bottom to the top and uh you know a good amount of timber but yeah you know that they're in there somewhere and and uh it makes it I wouldn't say it's, you know, you aren't running through a field with a butterfly net scooping them up or anything, but <laughs> you definitely, it, uh, it helps with knowing, hey, there's a group elk in here. And if you foul those up, you can go right over the ridge and you're back onto another pocket of timber where you saw elk go and they have no reason to move out of there unless you bump them. And even when you do bump them, sometimes they don't move out of that timber. And then if they do, they're probably just going over a ridge and into the next patch of timber. So. Okay. So it's funny when you said a little bit ago about how the timber's different, you know, than some areas where, you know, it's, it might be a little bit more open underneath, you know, the canopy in there where I was uh, texting uh, the couple of guys that I'm going out there with. And, uh, we we're talking about the dark timber and, and my cousin Mason responded, he goes, I sure hope it's not like, uh, Colorado, which is nothing but blowdowns everywhere <laughs> and, and everything else. He goes, I hope it's just like this, you know, green, just nice and walking. And, <laughs> you know, and it's a lot of those places are just, they're steep, but there's just these huge trails churned into the hillside and you'll come to a a nice little finger ridge where it is relative, I won't say flat, but you, you know, it levels out a little bit and there's a lot of nice benches and you'll find springs in there. And it's, there's still areas you can get into with blowdowns too. You know, you get some of that Jack pine and, uh, it's, <laughs> it's not fun to go through, Yeah. but for the most part, yeah, it's, it's not going to be like, uh, the, the high step and dance that a lot of, a lot of times you have to do in Colorado to get through the blowdowns. Yeah, no, that's, that's funny. So Corey, you talk a lot about, you know, the setup portion and, you know, now that say you're into an area and you're, you're finding elk, you know, explain a little bit more about the, you know, the final steps to when you're going to, to close the deal and just your setup in general. Yeah, no, I, and I think it's, the setup is, is the most important part. It takes you from the location phase to the opportunity phase. And I think it's the point where things fall apart most often, even for, for those of us who've hunted a long time, you know, it's still the setup that is difficult because you've got a, an elk coming into your calls, hopefully, and you're trying to guide them into a shooting lane and an elk has a mind of its own. So it's, it's really, you know, you got to understand what's going to make the elk comfortable to come in, make it feel like its senses are still protecting it, but not actually. And, uh, you know, things like if you're uh, straight above the elk on a ridge and he's straight down the hill from you, he's probably not going to turn and come straight up the hill. And, you know, understanding the reasons for that and understanding he's probably not going to come straight down the hill. And he's probably not going to come through a, a big brush patch. And he's probably not going to come across a wide open hillside. And just all these different things that really go back to the elk's sense of survival and uh, once once you understand that, it's like that elk's not going to come into this situation. We've got to move ahead 40 yards and see if there's a better spot and really pick those setups wisely. Uh, it can increase your your efficiency on getting that elk into a shooting lane. And once that happens, you increase the number of opportunities you have. And the more opportunities you have, the, the higher chance you have of being successful. So, you know, setups, a couple things that I keep in mind, always the wind, you know, that's Every minute of the day when you're elk hunting, you need to know what the wind and the thermals are doing. Uh, as you're closing in that distance to set up, it's even more important understanding 
hey, is there a, is there a competing hillside somewhere that's making the wind kind of go sideways here or pulling it into this draw because the draw is cooler? Uh, as I move over the hill and the elk's there, is it going to be a solid uphill thermal? And if it is, that elk's going to want, he's going to feel more comfortable coming in above where we're at, you know, by 40 or 60 yards. He's just going to want to circle above that. So, you know, for the collar, I want to have the collar down below so that elk's going to circle above. And as a shooter, I need to find my shooting lanes up on that level where the elk's likely to come in. And that way the elk's coming in. He thinks, hey, that bugle's down below me. I'm going to circle above it and get its wind before I commit. Uh, but that shooter has to be set up in a way that allows him to get a shot before the elk can tell that there's danger coming there from the from the scent. So um, the the thermals are huge. The, the wind is huge. Uh, I like to get on the same level as the elk to set up and try to call them across the hill rather than up or down. Uh, and then the last thing is just, you know, making sure you have ample shooting lanes. You don't want to get a shot at an elk and miss. And so getting there, picking the shooting lanes and, you know, using a range finder to get a distance on several landmarks so that you don't have to range the elk when it comes in because that's more movement and more time. You want to know, hey, that tree's at 45 yards and that elk walks in front of it. I'm holding my 40-yard pin on his vitals and and uh, good to go. And just, you know, I, I try to pick a, a target at 20 yards, a target at 30, a target at 40, a target at 50, and they might not be right next to each other, but at least I have a point of reference. So when that elk comes out, I'm like, oh, he's he's in front of the 60, but he's behind the 40, and I've got this tree over here that was 50. He looks about there. I'm going to shoot him for 50. So I don't necessarily range the elk and have an exact distance, but I have a really good idea of, of how far he is. Yeah. And with with that being said, I mean, the if you're off a couple of yards, it's not going to make a huge difference. You know, as far as well, with the, yeah. the size of the elk vitals and everything, and obviously you want to be as accurate as possible. But like you said, there's not a chance to pull up a rangefinder in the in the limited amount of you know calling scenarios and encounters that I've had. I tried pulling out my rangefinder once, and he went right through it, and that was it. You know. <laughs> yeah, and by the time you get your bow drawn back, he's moved 15 yards. You don't know how far he is anyway. So exactly. <laughs> no, and it's you know if if an elk's coming in, he starts raking. Yeah, I'll pull out my rangefinder, I'll hit him, and I'll say he's exactly 47 yards, and and I'll shoot him for that. And, and like you said, if you're off by a couple of yards, it's not going to matter if you still pick a spot and aim. And I think that's one of the biggest, you know, that shooting sequence, people get so excited. There's this huge elk, they draw back, and like all I have to do is just point the bow at him and shoot and I'll hit him. And it's amazing at 15 yards how you can miss an elk by a foot still if you don't, you know, settle into that shot sequence and, you know, anchor the same way you practiced and aim through your peep sight with your pins and pick a spot <laughs> on the side of the elk. It's just... I think we uh, we get excited, and if we forget to do those things we haven't practiced enough where it's just second nature, uh, we'll be kicking ourselves because it's like, that was a 20-yard chip shot. How did I miss? And It's uh, it's easy to do when you get excited. Oh, I've, I've done it on whitetails more than I'd like to admit. admit. And <laughs> and it just, what, what it came down to me, and this is just me personally, but I have to basically talk to myself in my head and go through that process or other, I have a, you know, a little mantra or saying that I have in my head and just to, to go through it and make sure that all those things are happening because I can't tell you, you know, when I, especially when I was younger, I'd, I'd, you know, shoot and I'd call my dad and I'd be like, Hey, I just, I shot a, a big buck. Well, how'd you hit? I don't know. I don't remember anything. 
I just completely <laughs> blacked out. You know, I don't know if I looked through my peep site or if I even, you know, did anything. And, and one, one thing that, that I try to do again, this is going back to whitetails and it definitely can be applied to elk, I think is so depending on like your site where, you know, if say you're shooting fixed pins or if like in my scenario, I'm shooting a, a spot hog that has a double pin on it and my top pin set at 30, I leave it at my bottom one's around 42. And that depends on this, you know, the, your bow speed. But I look at, you know, say when you pull back and you draw on an elk, you know, if both of those are in the, you know, in the vitals or something, you know, depending on where you're going, you're going to be okay. Like it's, you should, you know, when you're practicing with shooting a 3d target or whatever, figuring out like where the vitals sit between your couple pins, you know, say you're, he's between 30 and 40 and you have those couple pins there figuring out where they, where they fit. And if they're both, you know, within the lung cavity, you should be okay. And I don't know if that's the right way of doing it, but that's kind of what I've done at least for a, you know, a, uh, you know, a double check or uh, something to look back on. Totally. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people that do that. For me, I like to, I shoot a five pin site, a slider site. And the reason I do that is so I can practice out to 120 yards uh, during the summer. And I'd never even consider taking a shot at an animal at that distance, but shooting at 120 yards, your form has to be dialed in. And so it really helps me with my aiming. It helps with my form and follow through. And then when I move up to 40 yards and I have my fixed pins there, 40 yards just seems like a, a chip shot. It's just so much closer. My form is locked in. My groups are so much tighter. And, you know, the, the, the thing to keep in mind is it's really easy to miss a 20-yard shot. Even if you put your 20-yard pin on the target, if you aren't focused, if you aren't picking a spot, and if you aren't following through, it can, you know, you can miss an elk at 20 yards, even though the pin was on the target. And so I think, you know, practicing, making sure that your form is good, making sure that you're anchoring in the same spot and it's natural. Because there have been times when I was younger, I pulled back and didn't look through the peep sight. I literally pulled the string back right past my eye and looked at the sights and had a 20-yard pin on the elk and completely <laughs> missed it because the, you know, just my anchor point's floating out there. And so, you know, that's, that's an important part of it. And I think the thing to keep in mind is if you are gap shooting where you have a 20 and a 40 yard pin and if he's 30 yards you just have to put the two pins straddling the the vitals and shooting it's still important to pick a spot and aim for that spot and follow through on that spot and you know it, it can work really well and i know a lot of people that hunt successfully that way but i also know people that have five pins that can't hit the can't hit the elk every year and you know, it just comes down to that form and follow through. And that's, that's my mantra. And it's what I tell my kids when we're shooting. It's what I tell them when we're, you know, shooting free throws in basketball, anything it's focus form and follow through and pretty much any physical thing that your, you know, accuracy is, is important. I think those three that focus form and follow through is always going to be a, a pretty important process to follow. Yeah. I mean, so Corey with me I this year I had struggled quite a bit at the beginning of the year with target panic and and a lot of it was I usually in years past I shot all winter and I was always just shooting all the time and this year I had moved and and didn't you know I didn't have a place where I shot indoors close to me I, I can list a whole bunch of excuses but nonetheless I didn't shoot as much in the spring I was just struggling I was punching the trigger and so I 
and I had a, a help from a ton of people, but one of them was uh, Brady Miller. He I had him on the podcast to talk through it, and he went through his system, which he wrote a really good article on, and basically told me to take off my site and just practice form. And I did that for literally a month and a half and never started shooting actual targets until it was the beginning of July here. And then that just completely elevated my shooting. Like once I put it on, I was already further ahead than when I was shooting at the targets all the time, just because I was going through the same process and the follow through and everything else, like saying those, you know, words in my head, you know, that I'm making sure I'm pulling through and, and doing everything else there. And now, you know, my practice consists of similar to you. I don't, I don't shoot at 120 yards, but I'm shooting at, you know, 80 yards. And so, and, and, and trying, you know, doing total archery challenges and things like that, that, that really test you. And yeah, I'd never shoot an elk or an animal at all at that distance, but it feels so good when I move up to close distances and, and go through it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that blind bale shooting like that, it's, you know, I can remember I've, I've struggled with target panic my entire life and tried every kind of release. And it's really just, it's a mental block. It's, it's two different parts of your brain competing with each other. You've got one that's focusing on aiming and you've got another one that's wanting to execute the shot. And the problem is, is I could never keep my pin on the spot I wanted to aim at because the second it got close, my finger was wanting to pull the trigger and, and it basically became shotgun shooting. You know, I'd move the pin through the, the target. And when it came across where I wanted to hit, I'd pull the trigger. And for me, it, I literally decided I've got to learn to aim and be okay with that pin sitting on the dot and not feel like I have to shoot. And so I thought, well, why don't I just pull back and aim and just not shoot? You know, just tell myself I'm not going to shoot. All I'm doing is aiming and I'm going to let down. And I literally, it took five or six times, I couldn't put the pin on the target without pulling the trigger. I just, I couldn't make myself do it. And once I finally did it, and I was able to let that bow down, it changed everything. And it just rebooted my brain. And I'll do that sometimes now. I'll get into it a little bit where I'm hovering around it. And I'm just having troubles. I'm anticipating the shot a little bit. And as soon as the pin gets close, I know I'm going to pull the trigger. I'll just tell myself, all right, I'm not going to shoot. I'm going to do six I could, you know, just target aiming practice and I'll pull back, put the pin on it, put my finger on the trigger and know that I'm not going to shoot and force myself to hold it there for 20 seconds, pin on the dot, and then I'll let the bow down and I'll breathe for a couple minutes and then I'll draw back again and aim and hold the pin on there and just program my brain so that it's okay with that pin sitting on the dot and it doesn't feel like it has to execute a shot immediately that, hey, that pin can sit there and it's okay sitting there. And then I can go through my, my shot process of, you know, taking my time, squeezing the trigger. And it's been a, it's been a game changer for me as far as accuracy and just uh, having a lot more confidence in the shot. Yeah, no, that's, that's so big. I mean, cause if you can't execute the shot, you know, all the work that you did leading up to it is, and, and you know, things still do happen. I mean, everyone misses at times, but, the last chance of that pot, you know, is definitely better, obviously. Yeah. And that's what you're doing. You're blind bail shooting. You're programming your brain to be okay with not having to focus on the sight pins and just executing that shot process. And I guess mine is probably the reverse of that, not worrying about the shot process, focusing on the aiming process and just separating those two processes because they really are separate. It's, you've got to aim, 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 aim. 
And at some point during that aim, you've got to initiate a, a trigger pull. And I think the brain wants to put the two together and separating those two and realizing that, hey, I'm going to focus on aiming, let the trigger pull come natural. And it's been it's been super helpful for me. And it's something I struggled mightily with for a long time. Yeah. So that's... Uh that's that's going to be a pretty exciting year, I think, uh, for for all of us. And I'm I'm excited to see what the destination elk, you know, the the whole process on, and it's going to be released on YouTube. I'm assuming again. Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll film everything. It'll we'll film the full day. So I mean, all the details of getting up, loading our pack, getting in the truck, you know, hiking into the area, locating elk. Uh, it's really the aim of it is educational, and we'll take each day in the field and we'll break down something that happened, whether it's from scouting, whether it's a setup or a call in and explain right there in the field, hey, here's here's the strategy that either worked or that we should have used because what we did didn't work and really use the whole series as an educational component so that we're able to take people along with us. I mean, we literally will show you everything that goes on, good and bad. And, you know, last year was was hard. There was a lot of bad stuff, a lot of disappointment. And uh, we we showed all that. And hopefully uh, those who watched were able to learn from it as we were. And this year we're hoping to uh, maybe tip the scales a little bit and show a little bit more of the the fun and the success and, and bring some education from that side. But, yeah, so we'll start – uh, sometime first part of November, we haven't locked down an exact date yet, uh, but sometime around that first part of November, we'll start each day launching a, a day's video from the season and go in chronological order from the beginning to the end of the season. And uh, we're hoping to to end up with around 30 days of video to, to share on the Elk 101 YouTube channel. Oh, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Although when I get to see it, it's going to be a little bit later as that comes out right in the middle of the whitetail rut. And <laughs> I'm not, uh, my, my brain doesn't, I can't go back and forth between the two. <laughs> totally. No, and the good news is, and we're giving away a pile of, of gear. We're giving away uh, bows. We're giving away boots. We're giving away coolers. We're giving away an electric bike, a, a backcountry e-bike. Uh, we're giving away the, the Elk 101 Mountain Ops Elk Truck. All of that's going to be given away during the series. So it's uh, all people have to do is watch the series and leave comments once it starts. And then we go through and randomly pick winners for all the gear every day of the of the series. There will be giveaways. So wow, that's, a lot of cool and exciting stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Corey, is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners here with for you know your last time coming on before the elk season kicks off? <laughs> I could sit here and talk elk hunting for the next two weeks straight, I think. So, <laughs> no, I, I think uh, if if listeners, if there's anybody who is going hunting, uh, that apprehension, doubt, insecurity, any of that, you know, for someone that, that might be coming from back east and, and uh, worried about some of those logistics and being successful, just have an adventure, go and, and make it fun. Don't stress out, Ab- absolutely work for success, but don't make that your end goal. Enjoy the adventure and, and work to make success come. And when the two cross, it's uh, there's nothing like it, but don't put too much pressure on yourself to be successful and make that the uh, what makes or breaks the hunt because there's so much to be learned. There's so much that's just amazing about spending a week in elk country and sometimes we forget to soak all that in i think so go out and have fun 
work your tail off and uh, success will come. Awesome. Well, thanks, Corey. And just and just lastly, would you like to give a little bit some places where people can find some more of your content and a little bit about uh, everything? Yeah, the uh, Elk 101 YouTube channel, we've got a, a ton of content there. A lot of it's educational, especially learning to use elk calls. Uh, we've got a video series on learning to use diaphragm elk calls and just you know how to master the sounds you need to learn on that. Uh, just the website, elk101.com. There's 11 years worth of articles and videos and any topic you can imagine related to elk hunting. And then uh, Instagram, my personal Instagram is just coreyjacobson.elk101. And we have a elk101 Instagram as well. Um, I think that, that pretty well sums up most of the places I hang out. <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, and obviously, as, as uh, it's been on the introduction to the, the podcast here, the University of Elk Hunting and all the great information that's in that course, I, I still, again, that was my fourth year of going through it, and I'm still visiting it at least a few times a week, going through different sections and going back and taking notes. And I even have parts of the videos, you know, like downloaded on my phone so I can use them, you know, in the field. And when I, when I say that, I mean like specifically when it comes down to the, the quartering and elk and everything else, cause I've done it with whitetails, but I just, it's always nice to, when it comes down to it, if you need to review that, to have that right in my hands. Yeah. And just look how often we go to YouTube to learn to do something and we'll pause it, you know, as we're doing the process and, and actually doing it on our own, We'll pause the video and, and do it, and then we'll play it again and watch that section. And that is one of the, the benefits of being able to take it with you offline is if you're in the field and get stuck or have a question, it's right there. And you can just look it up and say, okay, that's how I do it. I'm confident now and, and continue. So I think uh, it's probably worth mentioning there's a discount code as well for listeners for the online course if they wanted to sign up. And in addition to the discount, you get 20 extra chances to win the uh great big elk truck we're giving away in November. So a little plug, if anybody's on the fence and wants to sign up there, you can save, I think it's a $20 discount, isn't it? Yeah. It's $20 yeah. discount with the code East meets West. Yep. So, so, all right, Corey, well, thanks again so much for coming on and, and talking and sharing some of your, uh, your knowledge here on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And, uh, if, uh, the elk tag gods, shine on me and i happen to draw an elk tag in pennsylvania you'll be the first one i call all right hey maybe maybe we'll both maybe we'll both draw all right that's, <laughs> that's right what, that's what that, I'm hoping that would be for. epic <laughs> <laughs> all right Corey. well we'll talk soon sounds good thanks bo thanks so much for listening to this episode of east meets west hunt with your host bo martonic for more great content and to stay up to date visit eastmeetswesthunt.com facebook at east meets west outdoors and instagram at east meets west hunt if you enjoyed today's episode please review and subscribe and we'll catch you next time